Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you again so much for the beautiful Sabbath, for this time we can all come together. And thank you, Lord, most of all, for being our God. Lord, we love you and we praise you because you first loved us. And we thank you so much for this season, this time in which we can reflect upon your birth and the gift to mankind. Dear Jesus, we pray by the time we leave uh, this time that we would know that we have been changed because we have encountered you. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. How many people, I think I might have already asked this question, but uh, I was going to say, how many people enjoy Christmas? Raise your hand. How many people are just like, I despise this time right now. I am a Scrooge. Okay, a few people over here. Hey, that's all right. You're being honest. Amen. And we are a safe place here. Even if you hate Christmas, you're welcome here. Amen. I want you to know that. You know, what's so interesting. Uh, you know, I grew up um, as a Hindu and also come from a Sikh background. But, you know, we celebrated this time. And many times, unknowingly, uh, we were doing things that many people would consider quite Christian. Um, my dad also would put out the Christmas tree and we grew up with Christmas gifts. But I had this big old problem. I could not wait till December 25th to open up these gifts. And so me being me, I decided that I was going to figure out what many of these gifts were. So what I oftentimes would do is that I would pick up the gifts in admiration and just glee excited about these wonderful gifts well before December 25th. And I would actually puncture the wrapping paper. And then I'd be like, oh, I accidentally did this. And then I would look inside, right? And then what happens is after I realized what it was, I would turn the gift around where the hole was and I would place it to its backside so no one would know that I actually found out what this gift was. And let me tell you something. There are many times that I was excited about what was in the gift and many times I was very disappointed about those gifts. In fact, yesterday, somebody was talking to their son, their little son, about what kind of Christmas gifts they want. And I barged in, I said, he wants socks. 200 pairs of socks. That's what he wants for Christmas. And this kid protested, he's like, no, I don't want socks at all. I'm like, no, he wants socks. Now let me ask you a question before we begin this time. What is the most unusual Christmas gift you received? Remember, friends, this is PG. What is the most unusual Christmas gift you receive? Raise your hand. I mean, don't tell me socks. That's not unusual, okay? What is the most unusual Christmas gift you received? Yes. A feather mattress. Okay, interesting. Anybody else? Yes. A pair of work jeans. Okay, good. Anybody else? Yes, Sherry. A golf club. A whole set of golf clubs. Did Chris get you that gift? Chris got you that gift, huh? Yes. Underwear, okay. Yes. What? An engine. Wow. How'd it fit under the tree? Okay. Anybody else? What is the most unusual Christmas gift you ever received? Royce. A desk. Okay. Good. Good. 
Yes, Gary. A pet rock. All right. That is unusual. Yes. Oh, wow. Do you guys hear that? The day they actually captured him was on Christmas Eve. I read the article. He was actually running a prayer meeting. That's when they barged in, right? Wow. That's intense. Anybody else? Millie. A towel cleanser? Tongue cleanser. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes, Tom. I got a box of coal. A box of what? Coal. Coal and stuff. Wow. I thought that was just a fable. They would do that. You know what's very interesting, friends? I mean, you'll receive so many kinds of gifts, but the older you get, the more you realize it's not about gifts. Amen? I mean, in fact, we should be teaching our kids that at an early age. Last year, I showed a video. And I stumbled upon this same video, and it's a video of kids who are receiving gifts. However, the parents decided to play a trick on them. The wrapping of that gift looked much bigger and much different than actually what the gift was. And so when the kids opened up the gift, they were quite surprised by what was inside that box. So I want to share that video with you right now. Okay? Where's your gift, Charlie? I don't like this. Oh. What is it? An old banana. An old banana? Isn't that exciting? No. What are you doing? It's a net. Oh, okay. Wow. A battery and an onion. What's wrong? Did you smell your onion? Here, smell it. tell me all the time about my cooking. I love it. You love my cooking, so I made you something. that peanut butter and jelly sandwich all right there's actually part two I'll show you next week you know but the whole point of this video was to show that sometimes gifts come in the most unusual kind of packaging sometimes the gift wrap itself throws us off on what we expect the gift to be 
What we're going to be looking at in the story of, in the Gospel of Luke, is actually when God sends his greatest gift. But friends, you're going to learn something. The packaging is quite unusual. Everybody take your Bible, let's go to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we're going to Luke chapter 2. And let's start with verse 1. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea to the city of David, which is called what? Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in the manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. You know what's so interesting, and I brought this out yesterday at the concert, that me share a little bit of worship talk. Is this. A few weeks ago, we learned there's actually an uninspired part of the Bible. Do you remember what I was? There's actually a part of the Bible that's not inspired by God. You're like, wait, what? I wasn't there during that sermon. There's a part of the Bible that's not inspired by God. And I want to read it to you. I want to show you what that part is right now. You can take a good look at this. It is the part that separates the book of Malachi from the book of Matthew. You want to know why? Because this isn't part of the holy writings. You say, what's the big deal? What you actually find when you're reading the Bible is a obstacle or a barrier is placed between what we, normally, what we normally refer to as the Old Testament and then what is also referred to as the New Testament. So everything that took place in the Old Testament, friends, is old. You guys hear what I'm saying so far? And what took place in the New Testament is new. But actually, when you study the Bible, you find that all of Scripture, starting with the book of Genesis, is a continuum, and it is going forward and progressing all the way to the book of Revelation. And guess what, friends? It's all about Jesus. Can you say amen to that? But the problem is that when we look at the books of the Old Testament, we say, that's just the Old Testament. There's something that starts taking place in our mind. When you think of old, you think of something that has diminished in what? Quality or value or effectiveness. No offense to the senior citizens, amen? You are not that way. But friends, if someone got you a gift and they said, hey, I brought you an old car. Or they say, I brought you a new car. Which one of those options would you prefer? You would say, I want the new car, right? Or if they say to you, hey, I'm giving you some old sneakers. Versus, I'm giving you some new sneakers, right? So when we take a good look at what the Bible is actually showing us, we find that all of Scripture is a continuum pointing to Jesus. Amen. And so you read about the most powerful prophecies throughout the Old Testament. You read about all these promises of God. Everybody take your Bible. Let's go to the book of Isaiah. I want you to see something. Isaiah chapter 9.
Isaiah chapter 9. We're going all the way to verse 6. Please say amen if you're there. Isaiah chapter 9, starting with verse 6. Notice what the Bible says right here. For unto us a what? A child is born, and unto us a son is given. Notice the next part of the verse. And the government will be upon his what? Shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and of, over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with justice, judgment and justice. From that time forward, even to forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I mean, you're reading these powerful promises in the Old Testament. There's 300 promises, prophecies in the Old Testament, pouring to the rival of Jesus. And every one of these prophecies is a powerful prophetic picture of what's going to happen. And so when you're reading much of the Old Testament, it's like this amazing buildup. Something big is about to happen. Something huge is about to happen. Something exciting is about to happen. And as you're reading throughout the Old Testament, you're getting more and more excited. Man, when that Messiah comes, oh world, you better watch out. You know, I grew up down in Southern California. I just want to bear my soul to you. My family is obsessed with the Lakers. I'll just walk off the stage right now if too many of you Actually, I grew up with my family being very obsessed with the Lakers. My father who passed away and my mother are traditional Indian parents. But let me tell you something. They become loud and they become... Sometimes saying expletives when the Lakers were playing. I mean, this is how I grew up. They're very traditional family. But then the Laker gang came on. Oh man, everyone come together. And it was like a family event for a traditional Indian family. But what was so interesting was many times we'd watch the Laker games that had to do with the finals. And it was so amazing because many times the teams that they would be up against were just as good as them. And they go back and forth, back and forth. And so I had this memory just embedded in my mind watching the Laker game. And never forgot this one game we were watching. The whole family was seated there. They were jumping out of their seats with curry and Indian food on the side. And so as they're watching it, back and forth the ball is going. The scores are nearly even. And as they're watching it, it's just this exciting moment. What's going to happen next? Friends, when you're reading throughout the Old Testament, when you're reading throughout the Bible, you get this powerful prophetic buildup of the Messiah. Are you tracking with me so far? Yes or no? You read about the most powerful miracles of God. You read about the Red Sea crossing. You'll read about Samson. You'll read about Elijah. And through all these powerful providences of God, they were opening the door for the Messiah to show up. However, the most unusual part of the Bible is this, friends. That when you actually look at the chapter in which the Messiah is born, it's so ordinary. In so almost unprovidential. You have all this prophetic buildup throughout the Old Testament. Pointing forward to the Messiah showing up. And then when you actually read Luke chapter 2. You're almost scratching your head like. Wait what? 
Here's God's greatest gift, friends. Here's where God is going to accomplish the most amount of work. Here's what, for thousands of years, the promises of God, the providences of God, have kept the Israelite people safe so that the Messiah would come. You would be thinking to yourself, man, when this happens, it's going to be extraordinary. But then when you actually read that chapter, you're left scratching your head thinking, what? Are you tracking with me so far, yes or no? Friends, the most beautiful part of this whole chapter in Luke chapter 2, when you superficially read it, all it looks like is a series of inconveniences. It looks like a series of trials. You would think, wait, man, here's God's greatest work. He's about to accomplish the greatest work ever. He's going to send his son who's going to die for the sins of all mankind. God has been waiting for this grand moment. And then when you actually read that chapter, you're just like, what in the world? Something is so strange. Friends, we just read several verses in Luke chapter 2. Many of these verses actually describe one circumstance happy another. The very first thing you read in Luke chapter 2, it says that Caesar Augustus was the emperor. Here is a man who was considered the emperor or the king of the world. Here is a man who was called the Pax Romona, the prince of peace. Actually on the coins they were embedded, the son of God. Here is a man who is on the throne. You would think to yourself, man, there's a counterfeit on the throne. Somebody else is ruling the world here. There isn't an empty throne waiting for the Messiah to show up and take control. When you're actually reading the first part of this gospel, it's describing an unusual situation. There was great political tension that was happening. In fact, what is interesting is that Caesar Augustus ordered there to be a census. He wanted to find out who was from where. And so a census took place. In fact, archaeological records show there were several times taxation took place. And so everybody had to go back to their town of birth, where they were born, and they had to go there so an accurate census, a registration, could take place. And now here Joseph is. By the way, what's his profession? He's a carpenter. By the way, do you know what carpenters... Need? Then he would, okay? <laughs> Tools, okay, all right. Time. They need time. Time for what? To finish their projects. What's the point? The point is this Joseph must have been completely inconvenienced to have to stop everything. To stop these projects, to take his tools, and then have to go all the way back to Bethlehem. But I want you to think about this. Not only was Joseph having to now stop what he was doing, he was with another lady. His second, his second, uh, his second soon to be wife. His first wife, many theologians believe, probably passed away. That's why Jesus had older brothers and sisters. And now here's the story. Joseph here has to go all the way back to Bethlehem with Mary, his betrothed wife. But what is so interesting, she wasn't yet married to him. She was promised to him, and she's pregnant. Wait a minute. You would think to yourself, this doesn't sound like a perfect setup here. Here the Messiah is supposed to show up. Here God's greatest gift is about to be dispatched to all of humanity. Everything up to this point is leading you to believe, wait a minute. This doesn't look right. The packaging is off here. 
And so now here's the story. Joseph having to be inconvenienced, going to this place. And in addition to that, he's with a woman who's been promised to him, and she's pregnant. Although the angel did tell Joseph, hey, Mary's with child, and that child comes from God. You can still imagine Joseph's mind thinking, okay, he was there just as much as a human as you or me. But then what's so interesting, the Bible then tells us, they get there and there was no room in the inn. Man, you would think, okay, could it get any more worse? And so what happens next is that they find a manger. Many people believe that that manger was probably connected, or like a little barn connected to the actual inn, sitting in all that place. And then she gives birth there. And the way the first part of Luke leaves us is this picture of with Mary holding the child Jesus and then placing that child upon the manger. Actually, the word is translated feed trough. And so the child is just there. And that's how the scene is left. God actually puts pause right there. And so when you're reading this story, up to this point, you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, something's not right here. Something's a little unusual about this story. Are you guys listening so far? Everything in this story seems up to this point to seem to be unprovidential. This doesn't look like the mighty hand of God. Friends, I want you to know something and it's got to stick in. Don't forget the words. There could have been a million other ways that Jesus could have showed up. Do you know that? In fact, I was doing a study of how pagan gods were uh, coming into existence as written by religious writers. Some describe a great cow in the sky and this cow gave birth to this god. I was reading one report of how this, this child was actually dropped off and laid at this palace. He's talking about all these mythological stories of way a god or a goddess could have showed up. And then you have this very bizarre story about Jesus. Friends, here's the point I want to make. Had Jesus come in any other way, any other way, it would have eclipsed his character. You guys hear what I just said? Had Jesus come in any other way, it would have eclipsed his character. Had he come in this great, powerful, royal, rich way, it would have eclipsed who he really was. And what's so amazing, friends, with the entirety of the Old Testament pointing to this powerful event, you would expect to believe some great and mighty things happen. But then when you're actually looking at the story, it's like, wait, what? Because God is wanting his people to understand something. That when Jesus stepped into humanity, he didn't just step into the most royal, wealthy, great part of humanity. He stepped into the reality of the mess. He stepped into the mess of humanity. I mean, just think about it. It's almost quite even scandalous looking. Here Mary is. She's pregnant before she's even married. Here Joseph is. His second wife, and he's got kids already. This doesn't look like something you would read in the book Adventist home, friends. Are you listening to me? And then when you're actually looking at the story, this doesn't look like some powerful deliverance of Israel. You're actually looking at the story and you're scratching your head. It's like, wait a minute. This looks like my life. 
this looks like my friend's life. This looks like my neighbor's life. This looks like my family's life. Where things aren't perfect. Where there's a mess. Friends, when Jesus stepped into humanity, he didn't step into the point zero 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 one percent of humanity who have everything right, friends. He stepped into the core, the essence of humanity, where it was messed up. And he came in such a way that when you first look at this, you're, you have to take a step back and you're like, wait a minute. That's some strange packaging. God's greatest gift seems to be packaged in inconvenience. Why am I bringing this up? Because, friends, your life may not look like a geometric construction where you can actually measure and analyze, this is my life and this is where it's going. You may find your life to be quite confusing. You may find the kinds of decisions you have to make quite confusing. You may find the circumstances you're in quite confusing. And you're going to find your life to be really not logical. Wait, if I did this, this should have happened. If I did this, this should have happened. And then you find your life thinking, wait a minute. Why is it that only bad things are now happening to me? Friends, there's one thing to remember about the providences of God. And that is this. They really will not be fully understood until we get to heaven. Amen? Never fully understood until we get to heaven. You know, Ellen White says something very interesting. She says these words right here. Long have we waited for our Savior's return. But nonetheless sure is the promise. Soon we shall be in our promised home. Notice these next words. There Jesus will lead us beside the living stream flowing from the throne of God. Notice this next part. And will explain to us the dark providences. Do you know what the word dark providences mean? Who knows what the word dark providences mean? No. Not just any kind of situations. Disasters. Troubles. In other words, negative circumstances that are happening to you. Notice what she says right here. There Jesus will lead us beside the living stream flowing from the throne of God and will explain to us the dark providences through which on this earth he brought us in order to perfect our characters. Friends, as much as we can say, you know what, God is doing this in my life, that's all right, amen? And we should be saying those things. But in reality, we'll never fully be able to understand what God is up to until heaven. But that's okay, amen? Because God is still teaching us lessons through the circumstances. When you look at Jesus' life, and when you look at Joseph's life and Mary's life, it seems to be a series of inconveniences. But however, couched in that inconvenience was God's greatest work. You may be going through the toughest time in your life, but friends, take courage. Let us say something. God may be doing the greatest work now. You may find yourself up against odds you've never faced before and find yourself crumbling. But guess what? God may be doing the greatest thing in your life now. God's great works, the Bible tells us. It says in Psalms, it's in dark clouds. Doesn't make sense always. Sometimes it's so confusing and you're left thinking to yourself, wait, this doesn't add up. 
I thought I was doing all the right things. It doesn't add up the conclusion. I don't get it. What's going on here? I was supposed to be doing the right thing. And now this is supposed to what's supposed to what is supposened to what happened. I didn't say that right. Supposed to what has happened. Anyways, you guys get the point I'm trying to make. So this is what happened when you have a head cold, right? But let's continue with this. Everybody go back to the story of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Something amazing is communicated here. Something quite powerful here. Okay, Luke chapter 2. Notice what the Bible says next. While pause is pressed upon the other scene, Luke chapter 2, go to all the way to verse 13. Or verse 8. Now they were in the same country, what? Shepherds living out in the flocks, in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And notice what the Bible says next. And suddenly, in other words, this was the reaction to what that angel said at the very end. You'll find the babe in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths. And all of a sudden, it was like the whole angelic choir could no longer hold back. And notice what happens next. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. This is where it gets more and more relevant. Friends, these shepherds were out there in the middle of the night. Everyone else was focused on trying to get inside that inn, trying to find a home. And as they were trying to find their home, God was looking for people who were open. And you know who he found? He found a group of shepherds just out in the field. Doing what they needed to be doing. And all of a sudden, a great and glorious angel appears. And other angels appear. Here's where it gets interesting. And they hear these angel messages. And do you know what they do next? They begin to investigate for themselves... What these angels were saying. Let's continue. Verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven. That the shepherds said to one another. Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass. Which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste. And notice this next part. And found Mary and Joseph and the babe. What? Lying in a manger. What is so interesting about this, friends, is this. All they heard were the messages of these angels. They heard these messages, and as soon as they heard them, they were so convicted. We need to follow the truth. We need to follow the word of God on this. And the word of God led them. Do you know what it led them to? Jesus. But friends, it doesn't say that those angels were over the manger. 
It doesn't say that when they got there, there was like another angel saying, hey, welcome in. You know, many times you look at these nativity scenes, and nothing, I don't got a problem with nativity scenes, don't get me wrong. But you see these grand and glorious nativity scenes where you have the baby Jesus, you have Mary and Martha, or not Mary and Martha, Mary and Joseph, wrong story, Mary and Joseph, you'll have the shepherds all bowing down, you'll have the wise men, you'll have Santa Claus also bowing down, and snowman bowing down as well. And you're looking at these most beautiful nativity scenes. My mom called me up the other day. She was excited. She said, we got laser lights for our Christmas lights. Laser Christmas lights for our home. I go, laser light? What's that? And she was just telling me how the laser will project an image on the roof. I don't got a problem with that. But friends, I want you to understand something. When the shepherds actually get to the manger, you know all they see? Do you know the only thing they saw when they get to the manger? A manger and a few people. Santa Claus wasn't there, amen? The snowman wasn't there. The shepherds weren't there because they were the shepherds getting there, right? The wise men show up a little bit later on. Right? But friends, I want you to listen to this. They so believed what the angels were saying. They said, we're going to investigate this truth. And they went out to investigate. And you know where it led them to? It led them to a place. Ready for this one? That was quite stinky. Come on, you don't think it smelled like Febreze in there, right? It's a barn, friends. Have you ever been in a barn? Did you just say you were born in one, Ed? Okay, sorry, I thought I heard that. Don't miss this point. It's such a powerful point. Friends, because God leads his people, and he leads them to the church, and oftentimes when they get to the church, they're going to find it quite stinky. Events. You know what? You know what they're going to find? They're not going to find a great crowd of people there. In fact, when God leads His people to the truth, you'll find that it's only just a few, and where it seems like the rest of the world should be knowing the same truth, they're out in the end. But you know what these shepherds did? They so believed the words of these angels. They said, you know what? We're going to follow this out. And they believed it. And when they came to the manger, they saw what the angel had said, and they said, yeah, there's the babe. And the Bible then tells us some remarkable truth. It says that they then begin to make widely known what they had seen and what they heard and what the angel had told them. Friends, God has given three powerful angels at the end of time to give messages to the entire world, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And many times people will hear these messages and when they follow these messages, they get to the church and they're just like, what? That's the church? This is God's remnant church? Wait a minute, wait. You're telling me this is the place that God is working? This is where Jesus is at? And friends, when you get to that place, many times there's an immediate test. You see, Jesus' character was so that of a humble, um, humble manner that when you first looked at him, you first saw him, there wasn't this halo around him, friends. You guys understand that, right? There wasn't this glorious angel right behind him. 
By just following the words of the angels, they led, it, was, they, it led them to the truth. And when they saw it, they said, yep, that's it. But I just think it's quite a beautiful thought to realize that out of all the places Jesus could have been, that was the place he knew what was best to be in. I've realized this more and more about the remnant church idea and this concept. It doesn't have the most amount of people. It doesn't have the world's great attention. It doesn't have the best facilities, friends. It doesn't have all those things that we would see. Man, this has this and that has this. But then, this doesn't have that. But of all the places that Jesus could have been, that's where he was. And if that's where Jesus was, that's where those shepherds wanted to be. Amen? That's where those shepherds wanted to be. We're living in a world today where the Bible tells us that many people reject sound truth. They have itching ears looking for things out in the world. But God is telling his people, that's where I'm at. This is where I'm at. And now it's up to them for them to investigate and see for themselves. Is this the place where Jesus is at? And as I said before, they may be quite surprised when they find out that the place is stinky. They may be quite surprised when they find out that when they get there, there's a lot of animal noise. They may be quite surprised that when they get there, it's not this grand, glorious, beautiful building. But if they know Jesus is there, they're going to have a desire in their heart to stay there. Amen? Friends, when you actually take a good look at this beautiful story in the Bible, it doesn't come packaged the way we think it should be packaged. It doesn't come in a way that we would think to ourselves, this is what would really, really attract humanity. It comes in a completely different way of that which is a humble character that draws more than just the the looks of men, but the hearts of men. And what you will find there is God's greatest providences couched in a series of inconveniences. You know, the whole story, as we're coming to a close, the whole story is the story of Jesus. The beautiful story of Jesus and his love for humanity, his care for humanity, his watch care. You know what's so amazing about this beautiful story? It's the story of how God gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. You know, the story of the wise men is quite an interesting story too. Similar vein of thought. They see a beautiful star out in the east. They go out traveling and they decide, well, the place we're going to go is Jerusalem. That's the capital. That's where the temple is. That's where the king is. That's where all the scholars and Pharisees are. They've got to know about Jesus. But when they get there, they're quite surprised. Everyone was troubled because they were here. 
And when they finally leave that place, the Bible says the light reappeared. And do you know where this light shone? The light shone over the house in which Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were. As they came to that little house, living in this beautiful, gorgeous temple in Jerusalem, all these people, and they get to this little house. They go inside the house, and the Bible says there's Jesus with his mother, Mary. And they bow down and worship Jesus. Because even these wise men understood something. They understood that this king had not come to overthrow the political regimes. This king had not come to sit upon a golden throne. This king did not come to impress people. They began to realize the manner in which he came signified a different kind of mission. A mission to destroy sin once and for all. You know, it's, I had a thought the other day, and the thought was very simple. It was this. It would have been a completely useless endeavor for God to destroy all death and all suffering without first dealing with the power of sin. You want to know why? Because sin would just bring back those things. When Jesus came to this earth, he came to deal with the power of sin and put an end to it. To put his heel upon the head of the serpent and to permanently secure this universe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This story is the story of Jesus, who is at the center of it all. Amen. Our heads right now for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful story. That when you stepped into the mess of humanity, Lord, you were showing us that you want to step into our lives. God, no matter how messed up they are, inconvenienced they are, we thank you, Jesus, that this doesn't push you away. Lord, right now, we just invite you again to be the center of our lives, the center of our church, to be our all in all. And Lord, I want to pray for those who are still searching and wanting to know the truth, that God, that they would know that where Jesus is, that's where they need to be. Father, thank you so much for being with us this Sabbath. We pray that throughout the rest of the day, that our hearts would just be full of Jesus. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.